Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Good morning, Kendale family. As always, it's good to be with you. Uh, Before we jump into our text this morning, uh, scriptures call us to outdo one another in showing honor. And as a a pastor within this church that often uh, is visible, uh, I think of myself, I think of Jake, I think of Stephen, I am so incredibly grateful when you get a chance to see the team of men that we lead alongside and just sitting under the teaching the past few weeks of a couple of men that don't teach very often. Uh, They're not on staff. They don't get paid to do this, uh, but give sacrificially of their lives to lead in this church. Think of Andrew, think of Bryant, think of Josh even leading us today in worship, and then 10 other men that lead in this church. I just want to pause and tell them thank you. And would you, church, join me in thanking them for leading our church so courageously and well? Yeah, where we, they took us the past couple of weeks. Uh, it wasn't purposeful, but it actually perfectly sets up where we're going for the next four weeks. So if you're curious, you've got a Bible, you want to know where to put your bookmark for the next four weeks, uh, place it here in Acts chapter 1. This chapter, and particularly verse 8 of this chapter, will serve as uh, the springboard for really everything that we're going to be talking about for the next four weeks For me, though, every time I open the book of Acts, this this might just be me, but for me, the most gripping word of this incredible book is in verse one of Acts. And I want to make sure you see it with me, because Acts starts this way, verse one, and we'll eventually get to verse eight, but it says this in verse one, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, which, side note, this may be news to some in the room, Acts is actually the sequel to another book in the New Testament. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, so think Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke also wrote Acts. Writes the Gospel of Luke first, then he writes Acts. But it's this word then, as he continues the sentence, that floors me. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, they began to do and teach. Right, that first narrative that begins with the Christmas nativity and the birth of Christ, and then in Luke 4, this epic moment when Jesus is gathered up in his hometown synagogue. He's got his friends, family, neighbors, people that have probably even bought some of his handcrafted goods sitting all around him. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him. He takes it, stands up, unrolls it, and he finds the place where these words are written. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Takes the scroll, rolls it up, hands it back to the attendant, sits down while everybody's eyes are fixed on him, And then speaks these words. Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. And it's one thing at the beginning of Luke to say that. It's a whole other thing to go out and do that. 
I think of Luke 5 where the paralyzed man is brought by four friends who can't get to Jesus. So they go up into the the house, like the roof of the house that Jesus is in, and they, they tear open a hole in the roof so they can lower him down to Jesus. And Jesus, seeing their faith, looks at the man, the paralyzed man, and says, sons, your, your sins are forgiven. And then to prove that he just had power to do what he just said, he heals him as well. He heals with authority. He teaches with authority all throughout the gospel of Luke. I think of two men who had everything that money could buy, Levi and Zacchaeus. Everything that money could buy, yet were spiritually bankrupt, who left it all and found their greatest joy in Jesus. I think of twice in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus walked up to corpses, dead people, and said, get up and rise, and they did. But the greater miracles are the ones, like at the end of Luke, when he looks at the simple faith of the criminal on the cross next to him, the spiritually bankrupt criminal next to him, But seeing his simple faith says to him, today, you will be with me in paradise. And then moments later, breathes his last. Hours later, he's buried. And for two days, he stays there. But it's what happened on the third day that has us still talking today because Jesus, though dead and went into the grave, he did not stay there, but he rose victoriously, overcoming sin and death And his resurrection lives as this timeless display that every promise, including even the one to that criminal, is yes in Jesus. Luke writes all of that, puts a period at the end of the Gospel of Luke, grabs a fresh piece of paper or whatever you you have back then, pulls out his pen, and then writes... I wrote the first narrative about all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus did while he walked the earth, that was just the beginning, church. And when we open up the book of Acts, the theme that should be in our mind is this is Jesus continued. What we have in front of us when we open up the book of Acts is 30 years of recorded history of how Jesus continued his work in the world. You go, how? Let's keep reading. How did Jesus continue his work? I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. And after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. Hold on to that word. We'll come back to that. But to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he essentially goes, don't get distracted. (laughs) It's not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has sent by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And at this, Jesus ascends into heaven before their eyes. Now I imagine what happens next is Jesus enters into the heaven to the worship and praise of choirs of angels that are so thick around him in every direction that you just look any direction and they are as far as you can see worshiping him. Angels and heavenly beings worshiping him, celebrating the victorious son of God. And as he stands in his rightful place and begins to sit next to the father, a hush falls over the room and one of the angels looks at Jesus and he says, so what's next? How are you gonna continue this work? An anticipation thick in the air, not a sound in all of heaven as they all lean in. And without hesitation, Jesus responds back, I'm going to use them. I imagine there's a moment there where it's like, okay, okay, but what's the backup plan? <laughs> and he looks back at them all and says, there isn't one. This is my plan A, and there is no plan B. Because the marvelous truth of Acts 1-8 is that God's eternal plan, like this is purposeful, but his eternal plan and his delight is not only to save you, but to use you. Like if you're in Christ this morning, don't sit here and start looking to your left or to your right, wondering if I'm like speaking to that person, right? Right? Like, no one sits on the bench in Jesus' kingdom. There's no A team or B team or varsity or JV. He's not looking to somebody else. Jesus is going to take his salvation to the ends of the earth, and he's going to use you and me and people like us. That is his plan A. And there's no plan B. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As you read this book of Acts, this verse kind of establishes for us kind of a, a basic layout of how this book unfolds. As we see in chapters 1 through 7, Christ's disciples, empowered by the Spirit, boldly testifying to Christ in Jerusalem, and then in chapters 8 through 12, going out into the surrounding regions, generally Samaria to the north and Judea to the south, and taking Jesus' name there. And then in Acts 13 and beyond, taking his name to the ends of the earth. And so the book unfolds that way. And over the next few weeks, we're going to have our teaching series kind of unfold that way as we talk about not just the call of Jesus and the mission for Jesus for their lives, like we're talking about what, what his, his vision is, not just for their lives, but for our lives. As we then take the gospel through those same concentric circles, what does it look like to be witnesses for Jesus in our Jerusalem to people that are near and often like us? So what does it look like us for to be bold and faithful witnesses to take the gospel to the surrounding regions around us? And what does it look like for us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? That's where we're going to be going for the next four weeks. 
And today we're talking about what it looks like to be faithful witnesses in our Jerusalem, those who are near to us and often like us. Before I do that, I want to address just a a quick thing. This is just a common misconception that I want to clear up. Again, just kind of establishing the foundation for this, this series. Here's the common misconception, and I want to start this by asking you a question. When I say church, what comes to your mind? When I say church, what comes to your mind? For most people, when they hear the word church, what comes to their mind is they think of a building or an event that takes place every Sunday. Like that's what comes to mind when you think of a church, right? You think of maybe an hour or two a week that you'd give up or something like that or, or more of your super spiritual, right? We think of, of church, it's this place where we, we find community. And so you can see in that, that picture, like there's like a circle there that represents community. Uh, it's where we give of our time. There's a clock there. It's where we give of our talents. There's a wrapped gift there. We, it's where we give up our treasures. There's the dollar sign there. Like we give that up for the church. Like the church is a building. It's, it's maybe an hour of our week. We, we think of everything heading in. And if the opportunity presents itself, when we think about church and we think about mission, we think about, I'm going to invite somebody into that building and hopefully one of the paid professionals there will tell them about Jesus. Often when we think about church, that's what comes to our mind. Kendall, that is not the church that Jesus had in mind when he died and not the church that he had in mind in Acts 1. The church that Jesus died for and had in mind in Acts 1 is not a building or an event, but it's a people saved by the blood of Jesus, filled by the Spirit, and mobilized on mission where everybody is an everyday missionary. Right? The church is a people that is saved by the blood of Jesus, filled by the Spirit, and mobilized on mission where everybody is an everyday missionary. This isn't to mean that like when we gather, it's a bad thing, or when we pool our resources together and give sacrificially to the church, it's a bad thing. But it's not supposed to end with us. The whole point of the reason why we gather is not to sit passively in comfy chairs, but it's to provoke one another on, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, that we would not grow apathetic to this mission on our lives, but being empowered by the Spirit and being encouraged by one another would leave this place as bold witnesses. We gather for that. We pool our resources together to continue to make sure that there's no needy person among us. But it's not just about pooling up our resources of time, talents, and treasures to just care for what's happening inside the walls of our church. No, we mobilize those things. We put as many of those resources on the launching pad to be sent out of this place to wreak havoc on Satan's kingdom. I want to do as much damage as possible while I'm alive. The church that Jesus envisioned when he gave this command, was a sent people. Not a building. What this building is, is just simply a tool. It's, it's meant to be a training center, a launching pad where we gather for small parts of our week that shape the rest of our lives as we leave this place and do life with the people around us and point them to Christ. It's where God's people are encouraged, equipped, and sent out on mission. And that mission field that extends to the ends of the earth 
begins the moment we walk out these doors. So clearing up a misconception, I want you to think rightly about the church and what it means to be the church. Let's talk about embracing the mission field that God has given us here in the Cedar Valley. And I'll be honest with you guys, just on the forefront, um, when I talk about engaging the mission of Jesus here locally, it's kind of a good news, bad news scenario. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna kind of sandwich it a bit to like soften the blow, give like the good news, go to the bad, come back to the good, sound fair? So here's the good news about ministry in the Cedar Valley. God has given us an incredible mission field in the Cedar Valley. There are in the Cedar Valley right now 170,000 unimpressive, mostly unimpressive people. I say mostly because if I say all, somebody's gonna probably be offended in here this morning. But what I love about Northeast Iowans is we don't take ourselves all that seriously. Like we get it. Everybody on the coast thinks about us as like a flyover state, but we know, we know what's true. We are the best kept secret in all of America. Right? We're the best kept secret in all of America. Right? We still wave at people we don't know. That's a beautiful thing. Like if somebody's stuck in a snowbank, we get out and like shovel them out. Like that's just a common courtesy thing around here. That's not normal. You know that, right? Like we're honest, hardworking, salt of the earth type of people. I love Iowans, particularly Northeast Iowans. I love being a witness for Christ here because at least in my experience, as I've done life with people my age, other parents in the school district, neighbors, other parents that have kids on sports teams, whatever, is that in general, as I'm interacting with the world around me, most people that I interact with from the Cedar Valley are church positive, meaning that in their minds, church is still generally a positive thing. Yeah, it, it's a good thing to go to church. In general, that's true of the people I interact with. They're church positive and many of them lost. And if not lost, radically divided in their affections. Yeah, like Jesus matters, but so does my bank account. Like Jesus matters, but so does like my position at work. Jesus matters, but so does my relationship status. Or Jesus matters, but so does my kids' sports success. Like divided in their affections, which is why I love our mission as a church to help people find their greatest joy in Jesus as he intended, that all those other things would pale in comparison. I love Northeast Iowa people and I love the world, the harvest field he's put around us, church positive, many lost. I also love that similar to Acts 2, When Peter, filled with the Spirit, he stands up in Jerusalem and begins to proclaim the gospel. And it says there in Acts 2 that there were people from every nation there on earth to hear what he had to say. I love that that is also true of the Cedar Valley. I love that we have businesses like Tyson and John Deere and a university like you and I that has become a magnet for the people of the world. Did you know this? I heard this just this past week. 9.2% of Waterloo, just Waterloo, is foreign born. This fall, Waterloo schools announced that there are now 45 different languages spoken in the public school system in Waterloo. 
Guys, God has brought the nations to us. All of this, 170,000 people, people from the nations have been brought to our doorstep. This is a mission field that we have, and you don't even have to put a for sale sign in front of your house. And not that there would ever be anything wrong with that. If God calls you to that, great. But we need to embrace this mission field that God has placed right at our doorstep. One of the, the great tragedies of of an America that has become more mobilized and transient is that more and more what's, what's happening in the young person's mind is they just think, well, I'm only gonna be here for like two or three years. Why would I invest here? Like, I'll, I'll save that for the next place I go to. And they just keep perpetually moving, never embracing the communities that they live in. Can I just make a plea for you for our Jerusalem this morning? I don't care if you plan to live here for the next two years or 20 years, can you please wrap your arms around this community and invest in it like you're never going to leave? Because even if you do leave in two years, I guarantee you will not look back at it and say that was wasted energy. Invest here like you're never going to leave. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. Told you that, right? I gave you a heads up, so I was going to sandwich this. Here's the bad news. The bad news is, is that the greatest barrier that exists, I believe, in the Cedar Valley to Jesus is that people are too familiar with him. Like they've become so comfortable with a wrong view of Jesus, they've actually become inoculated against the real thing. I'll take you back to Luke 4, that moment when Jesus stands up in his hometown synagogue reads from the prophet Isaiah, says today as you hear these things, like these things have been fulfilled. Do you know what happens after that? Somebody says in the crowd, isn't this Joseph's son? And then they try to throw him off a cliff. That's literally what happened after that. They were so comfortable with a wrong view of Jesus that they'd actually become inoculated against the real thing. They could not see who Jesus was when he was standing right in front of him. This is why tactically, as I engage friends, neighbors, things like that in the Cedar Valley, and, and people that are often too familiar with Jesus, I, I care very little and talk very little about past stuff, past accomplishments. If I do that with the people of the Cedar Valley, what I'm gonna get a lot is like, oh, I've always been a Christian. Oh, no, I prayed a prayer when I was 16, or I did this class or whatever, and got a confirmed or affirmed or whatever it is, you know, like, like that all happened, I'm, I'm good to go. I, I avoid talking about the past like almost altogether. And I just focus on the here and now. The Bible calls us to repent. I'm not gonna go back and check your credentials to see if you did that when you were 16 years old or whatever. Like I'm asking like, did you do that today? Did you wake up this morning and repent and give your life to Christ? We need to do that every day. Have you found your greatest joy in Jesus today? Do you see him moving in your life and shaping you today? Right, like you get this, right? We get this. Like if I looked at you and said, prove to me that you're alive, you wouldn't run home and dig up your birth certificate and come back with and be like, hey, there it is. No, if I asked you, are you alive? You would stand in front of me and start doing jumping jacks, right? You'd be like, no, I'm alive. So you can see that. It's the same thing. Are you really alive? What does that look like today? The greatest barrier 
is that people are too familiar with Jesus in our city. Second greatest barrier, and this is, this is close, like a close second, is that they're a little too familiar with me or with you. Now, I know you know what I'm talking about here. Like, they know you. So when you start proclaiming Christ, they know you got flaws, right? Jesus even mentioned this in Luke 4 when that whole scene unfolds and now they want to throw him off the cliff. He's like, man, prophets have no honor in their hometowns. If you've ever tried to share Jesus with somebody, you know that it's, this is true. Like, it's way easier to share with somebody that you don't know and will likely never meet again than with a family member or a neighbor or a coworker. Why? Well, one, because if you say something stupid, they're never gonna let you live that down. You know, so you're all nervous about that. But two, it's because they know you. They know you got flaws. Your coworkers have seen you screw up. Your neighbors have heard the shouts that come out of your house when you forgot that the windows were open. Like, your parents, this is frustrating. I get it. I'm in that spot. Like, they will never stop seeing you as the teenage version of yourself. It doesn't matter if you're 40, 50 years old. You will never outgrow that. Like, they remember you in other times of life making these bold statements about, like, I'm going to be an astronaut. And then they watched you fold. So when all of a sudden you're like, I'm a Christian now, and it changed everything about me, they're like, okay, okay, right. It's the hardest thing. Sometimes the hardest place to be a bold witness is in your hometown. You've got flaws, they know them. So what platform do you have at all to speak Jesus? Guys, if you're feeling me on this one, um, can I give you an encouragement that I gained from this text, from reading Acts 1 through 7? It's this. What you think disqualifies you is actually what qualifies you. I'll say that again. What you think disqualifies you is actually what qualifies you. All right, so quick caveat here. Like, I'm not excusing, like, ongoing sin in your life. Like, you need to confess sin, give it to Jesus, walk away from it, and be done with it. I'm not excusing ongoing sin in your life. What I'm talking about, though, is shame that lingers that would silence you. The stuff that you feel that's like, ah, what, what platform do I have? Here's what I mean. Go to Acts 4 with me. We see this in action. Acts 4, 5, there's this incredible moment that takes place. It says this, The next day the rulers, elders, scribes assembled in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family, essentially the same group that had just killed Jesus, crucified him a few weeks earlier, they're now assembled together for another trial. This time it isn't Jesus that's on trial, it's Peter and John that are on trial, two of Christ's disciples who are being faithful witnesses. And they had Peter and John stand before them and began to question them, by what power or in what name have you done this? A little bit of context here, Peter and John back in Acts 3 had healed a man who had been paralyzed since birth for 40 years of his life. And everybody knew this person. 
and he had been healed and now was standing miraculously in front of them. And they didn't know what to do about it because they thought they had crushed this whole Jesus thing and now these guys that were once cowards and scattered are now healing people and boldly testifying to who Christ is. And they want answers. And so verse eight, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man and by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus, the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. Could you imagine the boldness to say that to the people they're talking to? These guys could kill them for saying stuff like this. But there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And when they, all the religious leaders of the day, observed the boldness of Peter and John, like that ain't normal to them, and realized that they were unschooled and untrained men, some translations say ordinary, common fellows, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Jesus is sending us out as witnesses, not of our greatness, right? He said, Acts 1-8, you will be, he word, my witnesses. When you're going out, what you're boasting about is not about yourself, it's about Christ. Everybody knows you as ordinary and flawed and common. That's why your message when you go out is not, hey, look at me. You say, no, hey, look at me and then look at the one who died and gave himself up for people like me. He's the one that you should be paying attention to. Our boast is in Christ. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us and he didn't ask us to meet him halfway. He went all the way. He, he is the one that crossed the gap from heaven to our sinfulness and brought us into right relationship with God purely by faith in what he's done. And there's salvation and no one else. There's no other name given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's what we're witnessing to. So what you think disqualifies you is actually what qualifies you. To stand there and go, I know I'm nothing special. And I, if you watch my life, will let you down time and time again if you think I'm going to be perfect. By the grace of God, I don't have to be perfect. That's the gospel. I'm not minimizing my sin or excusing it. I want to change. But I know that Christ's grace is greater than my sin. I have experienced it. I've seen its power in my life, and I want you to know him. I want you to know him. The other beautiful thing about witnessing in our local context, guys, is that usually gospel fruit is not the result of the big things that we do in life. It's actually the compounding effect of the small things that we do. The words and actions that we take that are just persistent and consistent. 
It's winning in the little things. It's winning in the margins. It's like me just asking you these simple things like, who is eating at your dinner table tonight? Who are you purposefully pursuing with friendship? When you walk into a basketball game, where do you sit? When you go into the lunchroom of your school, where do you sit? Who are you inviting this year to read the Bible with you? Like, this is such a simple thing. But again, there's so many church-positive people around us. You could grab one friend that you know is solid in Jesus, grab the Bible reading plan out there, the welcome space, grab that, say, hey, let's read this together and invite one friend to join us to do that this year. What coworker do you know? What, what family member do you have that would probably do that? And you don't even know if they know Jesus. You'd be amazed at how something so little can just explode. It's, it's doing the little things right. How are you caring for your neighbors? How are you matching gospel proclamation with gospel demonstration? When I did youth ministry for four years, the training that we would do with our, our youth leaders often revolved around a very simple philosophy. We understood high school students, and we understood parents, you're gonna be like, amen to that. They have, most high schoolers, about five or six teachable moments in four years. Tops. And I said, your goal as a connection group leader in our youth ministry is to work your tail off every day to earn the relational space in their life that when all of a sudden life hits the fan and it gets bad and they need somebody to turn to, they turn to you. You'll get five or six of those over the next four years. That's what you're working for. Because the beauty of local ministry is it's a lot like high school ministry. Even those with hard hearts are gonna have somewhere in there some teachable moments because life's gonna get real. Something's gonna happen that all of a sudden puts their world into a tailspin. And if you have labored hard to earn that relational space in their life, they will turn to you in that moment having seen the persistent and consistent cadence of your life, and you will have a window by which to encourage and shape them. I love that about local ministry. I labor sometimes, not losing a sense of urgency, but I keep the long game in mind as well. It's the beauty of it. Because I'm not talking about church-sanctioned activities or ministry. I'm just talking about life. Who are you doing life with? Like if I could get you to think just a bit longer. Where has God and his sovereign wisdom and power put you? Like where has God and his sovereign wisdom and power, like who has he placed you around? You start thinking, no, 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 like I'm the one that like worked like to get this job and I'm the one that decided that we're living here. I go, that's not true, actually. God's the one who determines the times and places that we live. He's put you where he has you sovereignly to be his witness. So you pull back and go, but what do I say? And on top of that, I don't even know if I have the guts to say it. Can I give just two quick action steps before we wrap up today? Two quick action steps. You go, I don't know what to say. Simple action step, it's in your program. Take Gospel 101. If you want to learn how to use your words to speak what is true, 
Take Gospel 101. Eight short weeks, guys, and it'll equip you for the rest of your life that every time you open your mouth, you will feel confident, I know what the gospel is. So take that class. Second one, though, trust with me that God has actually equipped you and given you what you need for this calling. It's interesting, if you go back into Acts 1, that Jesus tells them to wait. Wait before you charge off in ministry. Just wait a second. Why? They had seen Jesus, they'd been with Jesus, but seeing Jesus wasn't enough. And they'd even seen the risen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, but seeing the resurrected Jesus wasn't enough. Those things weren't enough to equip them and send them out in power for ministry, no. Wait for the promised Holy Spirit and then go, and then go. Guys, the promise of Jesus is that the same spirit that anointed him for ministry and raised him from the dead, the same spirit that filled the cowardly Peter and gave him boldness and courage and words to say in the midst of these life-threatening moments is the same spirit that God promises to give us when we place our faith in Christ. The moment that you trust Christ in faith, he slides the Team Jesus jersey over your shoulders, pulls you off the bench, fills you with the Spirit, and says, let's go. Let's go. You have been given what you need. You have been given what you need. If you go back to Acts 4, Peter and John, before those religious leaders of their day, those leaders going, I don't know what to do with these guys. They're healing people, they won't shut up. So what they do is they bring them back in and they say, stop talking about Jesus. I wanna just walk you through what happens from that point to the end as we close today. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. That's just what a witness does. They can't help but testify to what they've seen and heard. And after threatening them further, they release them. And then here's what happens next. About eight verses later, they leave, they gather with the church in Jerusalem, and they raise their voices together and pray a prayer that I want you to pray with me today and this week. They said, now, Lord, Consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with boldness. What a sweet prayer. And while you stretch out your hand for healing, the signs and wonders are performed through your name, through your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with him again and began to speak the word of God boldly. As if you want to know what the church that Jesus died for, that he had in mind in Acts 1, looks like this is it. It's a people, not a building, but it's a people where everybody is an everyday mission missionary. And the mission field starts for them the moment they walk out those doors into a world that needs Jesus so badly. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.